Welcome to The Base Podcast, a podcast dedicated to building approachable surgical experiences for medical students in the state of Kansas and beyond. Here on The Base, we offer an opportunity to get to know surgeons in various specialties and subspecialties, paired with board-relevant pimping sessions to help you prepare for your surgical rotation, your subject exam, and Step 2 CK. I'm your host, Patrick Yeager. Well, hello and welcome. Thank you everyone for tuning in. I wanna welcome our guest today, Dr. Annabelle Mancias. She is an assistant professor at the University of Kansas Medical School. She received her bachelor's degree in nursing at, the Wich- at Wichita State before practicing as a registered nurse for three years. She then completed medical school at the University of Kansas School of Medicine and completed her obstetrics and gynecology residency at Wesley Medical Center in Wichita, Kansas. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me, Patrick and Olivia. Yeah. And then we also have uh, a special guest here as well. We have Olivia Pruce, a third year medical student. Hi, everyone. Happy to be on. Awesome. So we were chatting a little bit beforehand, but, you know, I'm always very curious what draws people into medicine. So can you just tell us a little bit about what drew you to a career in medicine? Yeah. So I remember, I think I was maybe like in third or second grade, but I remember being somewhere and somebody asking me what I wanted to be. And at that time, I could very clearly just say, I want to be a family medicine doctor, because that's the only physician that I've been exposed to. Growing up, my parents didn't really speak that great of English. And so a lot of the times my siblings and I would translate for them, whether that be at the doctor's office or at the grocery store, you know, whatever. That was like my first exposure to medicine. And I was so intrigued as the interactions that they had with us and with my parents and just seeing the waiting room full of people. It was just so, it just very intrigued me and amazed me every time we were there. And so that was a draw to medicine, really young. That's so interesting. I've always wondered like how much you can truly understand of medicine as like a, a, a child, like having to to do that. I've always just like been really curious for p- parents and, and kids, like the dynamic in that. Yeah, it's really, you know, of course I was a child and so very mm-hmm. rarely didn't, I guess, fully understand the full scope and the whole breadth of what it took to be a, a physician. But I, I could tell even from them the positive impact that they had on myself and my family and seeing those waiting rooms full of people and and, you know, having them in this positive light, it was very apparent, even at that age, the positive impact that they had in, in so many people's lives. Yeah. They had a very similar experience and just, you know, seeing the positive impact that family metaphysicians had on not only, you know, one person in a family, but everyone in, in the family or truly like the doctor you can go to for anything was truly uh, shaping, I guess. Yeah. And I grew up in South Central Kansas. I grew up in Hutchinson, Kansas. So it was a smaller town. And so that was the type of physician that I was exposed to because that was mostly you know, the the physician, the type of physician that was in a, a small setting like that. And it wasn't and, until later that I could tell like, oh, there are different kinds of doctors and like they can specialize in different things. And so then the exposure, of course, in nursing school, which is funny because I didn't want to do OB initially. I was thinking about being a hospitalist or an emergency room doctor, um, and it wasn't until med school that surgeon I was introduced to surgery or being more in an OR labor delivery setting and and the impact of of what like an OB can have in their community, but also speaking two languages. I knew that was where I could I I felt I could be most impactful 
So yeah, like where, where did you work when you were a nurse? Like which departments? And yeah, like, so, why did you decide to come back to medicine? Yeah, well, I always, medicine was always the goal. And so nursing school was kind of a way or a path that I saw to get there. Um, it helped pay for college. So I didn't have any undergrad loans. Um, and so I, let's see, the first two years that I was an RN, I worked in a cardiac step-down unit. And so we would have patient, like heart failure patients. And that was at Via Christi in Wichita, Kansas, St. Francis. Um, see, we had heart failure patients. We had post heart cath patients where we would pull sheets, things like that. And then my last year I worked in the emergency room at St. Francis, same hospital, Via Christi in Wichita. And I also, so that was a year that I was waiting to hear back from med school to see if I had gotten accepted. So I was done with undergrad and all the prereqs and I was just working. So I also worked part-time at WIC. It must've been even more nerve wracking waiting for that medical school, you know, sort of decision letter when you're working like that. Right. It was very much like, okay, what, what's next? If I don't get in, do I just keep working this much? <laughs> Cause I would just pick up extra hours and say, I guess I was single and just, just waiting. Just got to make money before medical school too. So you can have something to like rely on. <laughs> it did help. It did help. That is so fascinating too, because it's, I feel like it's fairly unconventional for people that go into medical school to have a really enriched uh, clinical experience in terms of working in the field that long. Um, so I, some people do make this switch from, you know, CNA nursing, even pharmacy people I know that have gone yeah. to medical school after. But I feel like that gives you an entirely different perspective of the care team as well, because you've served an entirely different role in terms of being a nurse on that team to where, do you feel like that's impacted the way that you practice or like how you've approached being a physician at all? I think it's helped a lot. I will say I was very thankful my intern year when I was getting asked doses for Zofran and Reglan. And I thought, oh, I've done this before. I have actively given this med before. So I, I know exactly what to do. I, I don't have to worry so much about the mechanism of action at this point, but I know the dose. So I will say those first months of intern year, I was really thankful for that. But I would say it has really helped in terms of like, how we interact with our ancillary staff, not just in the inpatient setting, but also in the clinic setting um, has really helped. I, th I think it's really hard to kind of understand all the roles and duties that everybody has. And so, you know, when we are, you know, maybe frustrated of things not going quickly or, you know, whatever, it, it's, it's helpful to have that kind of in the back of your mind of knowing, okay, well, I have to do all these things before we can get started or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah, it's another level of empathy. Like, even if, if you weren't in that exact role when you were serving as a nurse, you get it because you were there in some role at some time. Yeah. And so you have that extra layer of empathy for your colleagues, which is which is awesome. It's been really helpful, I think, especially those, especially in those residency years. You because that's when you office. want the nurses on your team. Yeah. You, <laughs> well, you always want them on your team. But yes, yes. especially that. But, but coming <laughs> coming in, that is one thing that can be a really big learning curve for some residents. Yeah. That you really, really want the nurses to like you and be on your side. Yes. And so you only... circle back to something you said really quickly too. You said you noticed that you could be the most impactful being an OBGYN and 
serving your community? And what was it that kind of tipped you off that, oh, like this would be the most impactful role? What did you see as a student or, um, you know, on your rotations that made you kind of think that way? Yeah, I saw it, I guess when I was a nurse also, I did, I volunteered at the Guadalupe Clinic in Wichita also. And I think it was impactful for me because, and this goes back to before medicine was where would I feel like I would make the most difference of not just the specialty that I do, but like really who I am, right? Like who I look like, um, the language I can speak. Um, and and I remember myself not having like an OB kind to personally go to, um, or I remember, you know, my sister and my mom and just things like that where we're like, gosh, like we're going to go see so-and-so and the uncomfortableness and the you know, just, um, you know, maybe, maybe the hesitation where I think, gosh, if there, if there's somebody that was maybe a little more relatable in a sense, um, how much more comforting that could be to people and patients. Um, and it was, so yes, I initially had thought like hospitalist or emergency medicine. And then in my OB rotation, I was like, oh, I am, I am, I felt like I was really needed. I mean, it was a constant, like, no one can talk to this person <laughs> who can, like, I, I was always happy to interpret even as a resident, even now, but I was just like, okay, like really, you know, all of us could be really great at whatever specialty we pick at, but it's, it's what resonates with you and, and where it fulfills, not just your like professional goals, but also like your altruistic goals that, that I think really brought the majority of us to medicine to begin with. And so on, on a similar vein, what was your first exposure to surgery, I guess? And, and when did you decide it was right for you? I will say first and second year in cadaver lab, I was like, I'm not, y'all can do this dissection. Like, I, I'm not going to do surgery. It's fine. <laughs> so of course we had to do it, right? It was part of the requirement. Um, but it was really during, and I did, gosh, I think I did my surgery rotation first. And I was still like, okay, yeah, this is cool. Like, sure. Like, I can see how people are drawn to this. Um, but it was really an OB in the C-sections. It was just a quick, quickest tumor reducing surgery. <laughs> it was just, you know, you had this, it was just like a synchronized dance. And there was something more about the C-section OR and the labor delivery OR that was, although can get chaotic, you know, in a, in a, in a controlled, happy um for the most part you know kind of happy instance and and there's a baby and you're done and it was still you know the stress of gosh things can go really bad but for the majority of the time things go really really well I will say that OR for the c-sections is definitely the most highly coordinated OR I've yeah. ever seen and when things happen they happen fast and I, everyone just like is on the same page it feels yeah. like same page it's the synchronized dance and if anybody knows me I, I really love to dance so maybe that's my dance floor I don't know <laughs> I mean but really it's the synchronized same instruments always you know and you get an experienced tech and you get to the point where it's like you don't even have to call for things out or the type of instruments although we still make our residents do that because they're not there yet but yeah <laughs> I've heard people say that, you know, the OR has a performative element on it. So maybe that's a, you know, a good analogy. Maybe. It's my dance floor, I guess. <laughs> I love that analogy because from 
people that I've talked to, medical students, or even general surgery residents and attendings in that universe, they're like, I think OB-GYN is the craziest like surgery specialty. <laughs> like specifically, they're like, you see a crash C-section and you just like, you can never think about them again in the same way because it's so intense. There's so much on the, on the line, so to speak, depending on, you know, you have good outcomes, but there's always risk. And so they're like, that is the one surgery resident told me that was the only surgery that she has ever walked out of was a crash C-section. The way that you talk about it though, is like this synchronized dance and this organized thing kind of shows the difference in how an OB-GYN can look at them and other surgeons kind of see them as how you process that environment in real yeah, time. Yeah, it's, and it's really, you're right. It's so, it's really chaotic, but everybody knows the role. And, and I really try to tell patients before I'm, I, I say, okay, it's going to seem really crazy and there's going to be a lot of people in your room, but everybody's there. Everybody knows their, their role and we're all here to take care of you and your baby, which is true. You know, we, sometimes we, right. Our patients are for the most part, always awake when we're doing the C-section. And so it's, exactly, which is another element that is not normal in other fields. Your patients are rarely awake. Like you do not want them to be awake for most of the time because it would maybe be a little traumatic, but I think that's a totally different component of being an OBGYN as well as you have this relationship, this fluid conversation with your patient kind of throughout the whole process, because it's so personal and can be so intimate. And there's not that time where you're like, okay, well, they're going to be under anesthesia and then we'll get to work. Like that doesn't always happen specifically right. labor and delivery, but different yeah. the gyne procedures. Exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah. It's just entirely, entirely different than anything else. Yeah, different, but so exciting all the time, every time. <laughs> you can even see it in my anesthesia rotation. I saw like the different side of it. And that was also interesting to me, just being on the, the other half of the curtain, being the one talking with the patient and say, everything's going great. Everything's going fine. And they're still super nervous because they're awake. Kind of switching gears a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit about your involvement in, you know, teaching and mentorship and what draws you to education specifically? I know that you worked kind of not in an academic setting prior to your current role. Yeah. So before I had worked for, gosh, five and a half, maybe six years in a community-based hospital still here in the Kansas City metro. Um, and it was that, you know, there was just some changes with, with our um, kind of job roles and things, which really kind of made me take a step back and and really think like, is this what I want for the rest of my career? You know, is there is there more? And I really felt like there was always more. I was even, you know, an undergrad and leading up to med school, I did a lot of the volunteer work, but it was, it wasn't just to, you know, get that check mark off your, make me a good applicant. I, it was really something that was important in my life. And, and being in a setting like KU, not only, of course, helped me continue to do my professional and, and clinical aspirations, but also really be in the community and showing students that, that that can continue to be a viable part of your career well beyond trying to get into med school, um, you know, and trying to match into a top residency or, you know, whatever. And so I, I really thought, gosh, you know, you got drawn into OB-GYN to really value that representation, right? Like these are women, these women look like all of us, right? It, it, I think it's really important to try to be to have people that look like your patients and patient populations. 
And, and having the students see that, I think, is, is really important as well. And so I, I hope that, you know, even just that little bit of, of mentorship, just, just being present is a lot. And then at JDoc, which I work with Olivia with really closely, you know, I think whether it's OB-GYN or a different specialty, you know, whatever, whatever is best for, for you all is, you know, that's, that's a very personal decision. But even in the setting of Women's Health Night, I, you know, really want to foster that relationship of, gosh, just because I'm an attending doesn't mean I'm scary. And we're really here to like, help you kind of figure yourself out, right? There's a lot of growth in med school. And I really think those clinical type settings where it's real like, oh, I'm a first year, I really don't know what I'm doing. I, I think can be really impactful for the rest of your career. And so I, I really am drawn to that and enjoy that a lot. Even when I'm tired in the evening. <laughs> well, just working so closely with you, Dr. Mincy, as I can see, it's hard. Like you're in the thick of your attending life. You have your personal life and your family and all these things going on. But I feel like every time you show up to JDoc, you are very much present, even if you don't feel it, I, like the, the directors and the other students can definitely feel it. And I think it makes like such a world of difference for your patients too, and how you go into like every single room. And it feels so personal, even in a walk-in free clinic where it's really hard to feel that way sometimes. Cause you're just kind of being tossed around on a schedule and seen by all these different people, because we're a yeah. safety net clinic and we're trying to do the best we can. I think the way that you show up for your patients makes like a big difference. And you can see how that thread is very common throughout all of our whip nights too. Oh, so, oh you're going to make me cry. And it's, yeah, it's, why, it's why you are the rainbow award winner. <laughs> like it's been recognized by the entire school of medicine and it's, it's very real. It, it, it is so, it's oh. very real. So, so yeah, I had to, had to throw that in there, give you your shout out since you got such a big award last year at AGA. Well, but, thank you for that, Olivia. I, um, it's funny. I'm just like, I'm, I'm just a human. I have my flaws. I just, I just do what I love. Yes. And it shows it really does. It makes so, and it makes a big difference for students too, because it can be such a turnoff when you're attending. Yeah. Or just yeah, like, yeah. And, and you're human. You and like, everyone has the right to be tired or, or kind of sick of their job. Like this is a normal thing for everybody, but I think it's awesome how you, you don't let that like kind of overrule your day or anything like that. So, yeah. I try, I try. It's hard sometimes. I try. <laughs> Yeah, I would say like as a student on the other side and perhaps closer to it, like having an attending that you are is approachable and like is not treating you like you're just another thing I have to get through in my day. It, it makes a big difference for us. And you're right. It's even more impactful in those early years, I think, in one M2 year. Um, you just hear all these stories and these rumors and all these things about how attendings are or, or, or aren't. And you have no idea which one to believe. And so when seeing it firsthand, it's a, it makes a big difference when your attending is approachable and nice and kind and wants you to improve. I, I do very much remember having, you know, sometimes some senior residents or attendees as students or even in residencies where I'm like, okay, like, I do you want me to say I don't know what I'm doing? Like, it's true. You know this. I just, <laughs> help me, you know, like, and I think that's so hard. And so I, I really try to be the opposite of that. And that's just the way it is sometimes, you know, it's a uh, it's high stress. Everybody can be stressed out. And, you know, like, a, a ten, like I said, we're all human and, 
and sometimes have bad outcomes too. And so that can impact, you know, interactions, you know, with everyone on the team. I feel like I've been talking to more and more attendings too, about how there's kind of, there's being, there's this shift that's happening in medicine where we're kind of allowed to be a little bit more human, so to speak, or people are like wanting that to come out more instead of being like, well, I, I know everything. I'm always on top of my game. And I'm like, I'm always performing at like the highest level. Cause that's kind of been this high stress expectation for decades. I mean, like just the role that you serve as a physician, it's hard to admit when you're not there. Cause then your patients get worried. Your staff gets worried. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting that there's kind of a shift that's been happening in the last few years. At least that's what I hear from attendings. Cause they're like the way that medical students are now it's, it's kind of very different than when I was in school and you're a much younger attending, but I don't know if you've seen that as well. <laughs> well, I do very much remember being told <laughs> like as a going into third year clerkships being like, you are to be seen and not heard, which is really like, you know, maybe not the best way to be. And there needs to be, you know, we, we definitely need to make sure we know our things, right? We have, are responsible for a lot of outcomes and, you know, it's important to continue evidence-based medicine and, and knowing the up-to-date things and, you know, being a lifelong learner, you guys might get tired of hearing that, but it's, it's so true um, and things are changing. So there's definitely, you know, we shouldn't take away or downplay the fact that, you know, we, we are responsible for knowing a lot of knowledge, but exactly. I think also, yes, adding that human factor to it and creating know, a safe learning environment. Exactly. Really. Exactly. Like it's for okay everyone. to make mistakes at the right time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and that's what our, our role is too, is to kind of help oversee and identify mistakes and, you know, prevent bad outcomes and, you know, being in an academic center that I, I really see my role because you learn you learn from things you know if you get your math question wrong on a math test you're going to go back and like learn it right and so same thing kind of in this learning you know as a, as a med student as a resident yeah and you kind of seamlessly transition for us because you mentioned like on your third year rotation hearing you know be seen not heard and kind of that environment yeah. so one of our questions is always, what would you tell yourself or what advice would you give yourself as an M3 looking back now? And it doesn't have to be related to your specialty. It could be anything, any advice for your M3 self. I, my M3 self, I would say go in with an open mind because when I went to M3, I didn't decide I was pretty sh I was like I'm not gonna do OB I'm probably not gonna do this you know it's just one of the required clerkships you know whatever so I would say go in with that and you know we're all tired and we all want to try to study for the shelf and you know we all know that's alert you know hanging over us it's coming in like whatever six eight weeks but I would say whatever good procedure you can get in on especially if you know that there's not going to be a resident involved get in on it because you'll probably get to do a lot more you know, that's what I would tell my M3 self. I think that's really good advice because I can think of a lot of opportunities that I had during third year where if I had said, just said, no, I want to go home, I wouldn't have been exposed to something that I actually ended up enjoying or got a different perspective on things or learned something that I could apply to my future practice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's, that's such a, 
interesting thing about medicine, but also like you're specifically like in the clerkship, we have no idea what's going to walk into the door, right? Sometimes we have scheduled cases, but sometimes it's, you know, the add-on case or the ER consult or something that's like, whoa, what was happening there, you know? And there's, and there's no way to predict that. It stays the same on call. <laughs> yeah, especially I feel like the consults are just like the stuff that you get not the most freedom as a medical student, but residents are like very busy and they're like, you know, I can't see this consult right now. I'm going to have to wait. How about you go talk to them and you tell me what you think's going on? And that's where you can really like you feel like a doctor because you're the one walking in knowing almost nothing and you come out with, you know, history the physical and a differential and maybe a plan too yeah yeah it's really important and I know sometimes even in clinic we're like did you review their history and they're like no I didn't ask but gosh that can be so telling and I think it's really like drives the the kind of basics of medicine right history most of the time patients will tell you what's happening they may not know the name right they may not know the the diagnoses but they have listed every single symptom right? Their past medical history or whatever medication you're like, oh, oh, like they, they basically told me what's happening. And it's so, you know, that, that human, that, that communication, that interaction is, is the, the basis of medicine, right? <laughs> I think ultimately deep down, that's what kind of draws a lot of us to medicine, right? Is like that basic communication, that interaction with people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I know there's a lot of like myths out there about every specialty and you know what it what they are or what they what they aren't. You know, what's one myth about your specialty that you would like to debunk for our listeners? Hmm. I know. Oh my gosh, I read this. I, 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 I will confess to the audience. I got a little list before and I saw this and I was like, I have no idea. <laughs> um I guess I don't know. I was going to say we're all women, but it really is predominantly a female-dominated specialty as opposed to some of the male, some of them that are still pretty male-dominated. Although in our kind of department right now, I think we're pretty well represented from, you know, both sexes. You know, it's hard. I think a lot of people just think we're on call delivering babies all night, which I think for some of us is true depending on your call schedule. But I think it's also important to know that you can build your practice um, to be that, you know, if you're in a larger group, your call's not going to be that bad. It's also kind of shifting towards, you know, some people doing GYN only or doing like a minimally invasive GYN surgery fellowship. Um, and they don't do obstetrics anymore, as opposed to like some of us who really love obstetrics and strictly want to do obstetrics and, and have, are not doing the GYN surgeries anymore. So I think, you know, it, it just kind of depends on, you can really kind of build your practice. I think the way it is, I think most people are like, gosh, you're doing surgeries all day long, delivering babies all night long. So I'd say probably maybe that's maybe not necessarily a myth, but maybe a misconception going into where you can really kind of tailor your practice, especially like where in the country you decide to practice. A lot of the coasts are seeing more kind of GYN only specialists where they are mixed trained and, and, and patients seek that. So, you know, I, th I think, um, you know, you can build your practice however you want it to be. I don't know if that answered that question, Patrick, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> I think it definitely did because so many people are like, 
I tell them I, I'd like to, you know, match OB Gyne and they say, well, your schedule's just gonna be nuts. And I'm like, well, it might be, but like, who knows where I'm going to work or what I'm going to be like, I have no idea. And so I think a lot of people think you're on call 24, seven, 365, delivering all yeah. of your patients all the time. And so I think it's important for students to know that you can build a practice, both how surgical and how clinical do you want it? Medicine versus surgery and those kinds of things too. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's, um, you know, maybe, maybe back, you know, a long time ago, it used to be, you know, one OB per town and they would be up all night, but it's definitely not like that. And, you know, the coming to the academic center, I, I definitely have last days on call, which is nice. But even at my last practice, we were really open with patients and said, hey, you know what? We do a rotating call schedule and I'm not on call every night. So it could be one of my partners that delivers you. And you know, that's safe for everybody, right? That's safe for patients. You don't want somebody that's over, you know, uh, underslept, exhausted in a potentially high stress emergent situation. And, um, you know, it helps with physician wellness too. I'm just curious in that situation, if you had a patient who like really wanted you to deliver their baby, would you, and they wanted, and they're like, okay, with scheduling, like induction or scheduling a C-section, would you be up to doing it in that situation? I, I will still personally come in for some C-sections that are scheduled um, because it's scheduled, you know, and, but, but even then, even though we plan inductions out, even though we plan C-sections out, I always have the caveat, okay, we make all this planning, but baby's kind of I mean, they're, they're kind of the boss and they kind of run the show. So if your water breaks two days before this is scheduled, it's going to be one of my partners that helps deliver you, you know, one of my partners in the residence, you know, and, 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 and people are understanding, right. They, they know we can't control the future. They don't know what, you know, we, none of us know what the future holds. Right. Um, but I will still do that on occasion. Yeah. Especially babies. They uh, have a mind of their own. Absolutely. Absolutely. The one thing I was going to say is I feel like an ob too, it's almost, it's harder to say no. Like if you've seen someone through their whole pregnancy and like you really connect with them and you like really want to be there for that moment. Like, I feel like it's sometimes you can't help it. Like you just want to go in and be there right? Like, so no matter true. how much you are like, I don't know, thinking otherwise. Yeah. It's so true. And I think like my clinical nurses <laughs> and like my partners will be like, Oh yes, if she has a flaw, it's saying no. It's not knowing how to say no. So don't let me teach you that, please. <laughs> One of the things we like to ask all of our guests is about, you know, things they do outside of the operating room. Um, could you like name and describe a recent book or any sort of literature, you know, song, uh, podcast, television show, movie, whatever, um, oh that you've read and that has had a particularly positive impression on you oh my gosh I don't know I, I will be honest I haven't read a book recently that sounds terrible I'm in the middle of trying to get my maintenance of certification done I have one more like journal article I have to read so I haven't read anything except for those recently um let me think <laughs> I listened to and it's been a little bit I would listen to like NPRs, it's in Spanish. Um, oh gosh, and the name is, escapes me, but I listen to it because I am always really worried that I'm going to like lose my Spanish. So I like listen to it in the car. And um, there is a, a higher Portuguese speaking population here than I realize here in KC. 
And so I tried to do some learning Portuguese in the car too. Um, but that's really, that's actually a lot harder than I thought because it's really similar to Spanish, but the ones that are not the same, I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know this. So those are the kind of podcasts that I've listened to recently. Um, I'm trying to think. <laughs> I am just not surprised you're trying to learn a third language. That just seems very <laughs> I'm like, I've spent time in my car. I might as well try to do something <laughs> when I'm not listening to Taylor Swift or Beyonce. You know? Oh my gosh, Patrick, that's terrible. I really haven't read a book. Now I'm like, oh my gosh, I should read a book over. I have a week off in December. I should do that. I was not trying to guilt you into reading a new book. <laughs> I personally am a fan of audiobooks. I do a lot of that in the car. Yeah. Oh, that's smart. I should do that too. And Spotify, they just started that new um, audiobook component of their subscription if you use them. Oh, so it's nice I you do. get like free access to hundreds of books. I'm shameless plug for Spotify right now. <laughs> get audiobooks this podcast is not sponsored by Spotify, but if you want to, just let us know. I was going to say, hopefully you can get some endorsements now. <laughs> we're reviewed or listened to on Spotify. So there we go. Okay. Well, maybe you guys should give me book suggestions. <laughs> We'll let Both you know offline, but I am curious yeah. about your uh, your song recommendations because I'm sure there's a choir. Um, like, what's your go-to one in the operating room? Oh, well, I don't have like a one specific, but I usually will tell the text. I'm like, okay, no hard rock and no really twangy country, anything else I'm, I'm up, up for. And sometimes I'll let them pick, but usually it's like, okay, give me some Beyonce Shakira or Taylor Swift and we're, we'll be good. And then some throwing some bad money in there. But then sometimes I'm like, oh, I can understand what he's saying. But if there's other people that can really understand the lyrics, then I'm like, oh, maybe, maybe we shouldn't. Because <laughs> it's all edited. <laughs> that sounds like my kind of OR. <laughs> <laughs> we listened to uh, Nicki Minaj's new um, CD yesterday. My hysterectomy. It was good. It was nice. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Oh, my goodness. All right, so next we're going to move on to the uh, pimping session. This is meant to be more of a formal board review style question for sort of oral boards and for your shelf review. So we'll have Dr. Mancias uh, read the case and kind of give her questions to us and we'll respond as needed. All right, are you guys ready? Okay, a 27-year-old female presents to urgent care with subacute severe pelvic pain. She describes the pain as sharp and constant and associated with nausea. The abdominal pain began one day prior and she denies fever and gastrointestinal symptoms, denies abnormal vaginal discharge and dysuria. She reports no new sexual contacts and recently had STI testing that was negative one month prior to presentation. The patient has no significant past medical or surgical history. The only medicines she's taking are a oral contraceptive pill and an over-the-counter non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug as needed for pain. She reports no allergies and reports no contributory family history. What would you guys like to know next? The vaginal discharge, no pain. Has she had yeah, any pain with sexual intercourse? Um, sometimes. Sometimes. Okay. More recently. Recently, okay. Um, any recent bleeding? No abnormal bleeding. No abnormal bleeding. Um, is her menstrual period regular? It, um, and by regular, and 
did she have one recently? Um, yes. Her last menstrual period was maybe two weeks ago. And has this kind of pain ever happened before? This has not. This has never had pain like this before. Okay. Does it radiate? It's mostly on one side and it kind of waxes and wanes, but has been more constant now. So increasing in severity too. Yeah. Okay. It's associated well, with nausea. Did she actually vomit? Um, she hasn't, but she feels like she's going to. So kind of sharp, kind of, kind of waxing and waning a little bit before. Now it's more sharp and constant. I guess I'd want to do like a physical examination next, you know, vital signs, all that stuff, since she denied being febrile. Okay. So her vital signs are within normal limits. The physical exam is noted for tenderness and guarding in the right lower quadrant of the abdomen. Her bowel sounds are decreased and rough things and psoas signs are absent. The patient has no CVA tenderness. Um, in the emergency room, the patient has a, a genital urinary exam, which is only remarkable for cervical motion tenderness. Is McBurney's point tenderness? Is there anything there? Um, kind of right lower quadrant, so it, it could be. I was going to say we could do a little bit of a differential based off of the presentation. I think you were kind of, Patrick, pining at appendicitis. I think that would be on my differential, even though she's a febrile um, you know, being a female of childbearing age, even though she's on an oral contraceptive, you could say ectopic pregnancy, even. I'm actually going to stop you right there, Olivia, because I think anyone that has childbearing potential, regardless of whether they're yes. on any sort of contraception, I think that's a huge point to highlight for everyone, regardless of what specialty you're going into, needs a, a pregnancy test, whether that's urine or serum. Exactly. So we can't, just because she's on a contraceptive, exactly. We can't say that she wouldn't be pregnant. I agree entirely. Yeah. But thinking about ectopic pregnancy in this presentation would be appropriate. Um, Patrick, what else do you think? And Patrick, you mentioned uh, McBurney's point before. Can you tell our audience what that is? Do you remember? Yeah. McBurney's point tenderness is, is a specific point in the abdomen. Um, it's one third between the belly button. If you draw a straight line from the belly button to the anterior superior iliac spine, two thirds of the way there is roughly, roughly where the appendix is in most normal. And I say normal with heavy quotations because these are nobody's normal. Everyone has unique anatomy um, where if you press down on it, you should be palpating the appendix and that would give you severe pain. And the pain's actually most present when you let go on it because okay. the appendix is physically rebounding in the abdomen. Okay. And so we have, thanks, Patrick. Sorry, I interrupted you guys. No so worries. We have, okay, our, so we're at differential so far. And other things I think about for the differential with cervical motion tenderness might, you know, in my mind, that's pelvic inflammatory disease yeah. needs to be added to it as well. Um, and then ovarian torsion could pre pre prevent like this as well. Correct. Okay. Yeah. I'd also maybe think like maybe a stone as well, you know, make when, you know, sometimes it's, yeah. it's hard to like, especially with, you know, female patients, assigned female at birth patients, we always are 
you know, focused on fallopian tubes, ovaries, uterus, but right, there's whole other things that can cause some either right or left lower quadrant pain that can be pretty sharp and severe. So I would, I would say maybe a, a nephrolithiasis or like a kidney stone could be part of that too, especially this severe acute kind of needing to be in the ER type pain. Okay. Now that you mentioned that, I also think about like bowel obstructions too, could have a small or a large bowel obstruction or maybe even endometriosis, but maybe that wouldn't be as subacute. What else, guys? Okay, other differentials. Somebody mentioned torsion. Somebody said a pregnancy, specifically, like I think you said it already, Olivia. Like ectopicity, yeah. yeah. Maybe appendicitis, really cute. You know, Abby, stone. I think those are kind of inflammatory like disease was something there that Patrick yeah. said, just cervical yeah. oh, A ruptured cyst, maybe traumatic. Yeah, I think so. Unilateral. Mm -hmm. um, also, something to think about with the pelvic inflammatory disease, maybe like a, a component of that is like a tubo ovarian abscess, unilateral. So, so falls That's into that umbrella of pelvic inflammatory disease as well. All right. I feel good about our differential. I feel real good about it too. <laughs> that was one of the better ones we've done on a show. So where do you, do you feel like those are accurate to what your options have been on the shelf, Patrick? Yeah, I do. I do. Typically right. with this sort of stuff, it's like infectious pregnancy, trauma, and uh, torsion. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So what labs do you want? You guys have kind of talked about this already, but let's kind of summarize and maybe make it a little bit clearer. We did a call out for a pregnancy test, even yes. though she's a contraceptive, we, you get one every single time, no matter what. Um, one time I think I accidentally saw beta HCG drop put on a man's orders too, because they are so <laughs> used to reflex ordering things. So that's how often the ER is doing these. <laughs> I think even though she had a recent STI testing, it's, I mean, she has no new partners. You don't know if her one partner has new partners, you know, you never know. So mm -hmm. not a bad idea to do a chlamydia gonorrhea and a UA, you know, if we're concerned for any sort of UTI or nephrolithiasis presentation there. Okay. All right. Any other labs, you guys? Just the CBC trying to, you know, white count. Is it elevated? Is she maybe hemorrhaging? Yeah. CMP, creatinine and you know, some kidney function, see if, if, you know, we're thinking of a kidney or ureter presentation there that could be indicative of something too. Okay. We got some labs. We have our pregnancy test. UA could see, you know, if she's having any sort of, you know, bacteria in the urine, protein in the urine, anything like that. We should probably send them all off for culture too, but we'll need to act before they get back. And then you mentioned the UA, do you know what would be concerning for like a, you know, we talked about renal stone too, as part of the differential that would make us concerned about that because the culture wouldn't show that, right? Yeah. Like blood, either uh, frank or microscopic. Yeah. So maybe like a UA. Okay. All right. So review the labs in the ED show, repeat STI screening, like you guys had mentioned. So including gonorrhea and chlamydia, and those are all negative. Um, looks like 
we also ordered some inflammatory markers. So let's see, a mildly elevated ESR and CRP. Genital, bacterial, fungal cultures were negative. UA was normal. And the HCG blood test was all negative. What else should we do? What other studies are you guys interested in getting? My, for any, any woman of, uh, or any assigned female at birth, patient, I'd want to get an ultrasound of the abdomen, anything that would be the best imaging study for the abdominal contents. If that comes back negative or indeterminate, I'd want to progress with a CT scan since the HCG came back negative. I agree, Patrick. I think that's a smart idea. Okay. CT um, if necessary. Okay. All right, say we do the CT, didn't maybe show us much, maybe a, maybe a right ovarian cyst, question mark. What kind of other imaging or what other studies would you want to do? That was from a CT. That was from a CT. I was going to say ultrasound with, is it like a Doppler, like so you could see blood flow? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So like our sauna is best for our ultrasound, it's best for imaging like uterus, that nexa, the ovaries. And so and our CT was, you know, equivocal. Yeah, maybe a cyst, something, couldn't really tell, but no signs of like inflammation or fat straining for appendicitis. That'll look good. So we check mark that off. Okay. And so then we decided to get the ultrasound. Yeah. And then during the ultrasound, the tech told you, gosh, she has a lot of pain on that right side. And I really didn't see there's this seven centimeter simple looking cyst. And I didn't really see much blood flow to the ovary. Tell me what you guys think. That is a huge red flag for me. If there's no blood flow to the ovary. <laughs> Uh, that would make me really nervous. And even though she's like stable, like her vitals are stable and she's not febrile, I would still think, you know, you need to take her to the OR for a laparotomy or laparoscopy. Excuse yeah. me. So tell me, tell me what that blood flow, tell me why it's a red flag to you. I think lack of blood flow, you're thinking ovarian torsion. You're not yeah. thinking, you know, it's not an ectopic pregnancy anymore. We're kind of ruling out those other things. And that lack of blood flow specifically would be the red flag for a torsion. Okay. And then adding on the, the cyst present, like being present as well. I know the most common cause of a torsion is a unilateral cyst that kind of almost causes the ovary to like flip on itself and kink the blood flow and it can't get undone. Yeah. Sometimes, and just a little tidbit, sometimes on ultrasound, we don't always see like that obstruction of blood flow, right? Sometimes we'll see intermittent or sometimes we're like, man, we can still see blood flow, but but the, the clinical sign is the like severe pain. All right. So have we diagnosed this person? Yeah. So very intuition. Okay. And, and how do we, what, what's the next step? What are we, what are we telling this patient? That they need surgery. Yeah. But we're also counseling them that they may lose their ovary depending on, you know, how long this has been going on. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important, right? This is, this is the treatment It's surgery. It is a surgical emergency. Um, because that, especially with, with your imaging, not showing blood flow, then the blood tissue is going to get necrotic, right? It's going to die. Okay. Okay. Great job.
guys. Awesome. There well, thank we... you again for everything and for being on the podcast. That was a, a great time and a, a great conversation. I just want to thank you. Yeah. Well, thanks for the, the invitation, guys. Hopefully that was helpful to someone. Well, <laughs> I'm sure it will be helpful to many. It's been fun. We're kind of dipping our toes outside of our surgery clerkship and into another one a little bit. So it'll be fun to help people in two different ways. Yeah. Well, good luck to everybody. Um, of course, if you guys have any questions or anything, you can contact the host and they know how to get a hold of me. <laughs> there we go. You're going to just get flooded with emails. Can I shadow you? Can I do <laughs> I know. <laughs> if I say no, it's not because I don't want to. It's because I might be full already. <laughs> You're busy and you've got the medical students on your service committee anyway. So, but anyway, thank you again, Dr. Mancius, and we will see everybody next time on The Base Podcast.